Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the sixth edition of Cinema Effect. I'm Zach, and I'm joined by, well, my fellow Hans Zimmer appreciator, Jaden. You used that one last week. I know, but uh, as we'll get into in a second, I was really disappointed with the audience this week, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I was let down. I know you guys were probably rejoicing, <laughs> but personally, I was like, eh, all right. Well, I guess we'll get to stick with, stick with the stale nicknames. And uh, with that in mind, I'm also joined by, I think the best nickname I've given you so far, Fitzy, that it's too good. I've got to keep it. And that is Paul Thomas Henderson's number one fanboy, Liam. Hello. All this means, Zach, is that you're the only one with a real nickname in the Schofield kid. That's right. So so how does that work, do you think? Do you have to, like, do what you just kind of did right there and have to, like, shoehorn in just saying my name for no reason? You know nah, I, mean? I reckon the way you go is I'm the Schofield kid and I'm joined by, you know, my mate oh, this That's weird having to call yourself it, though. Don't you reckon? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it is, but you know. Oh, God. How, how about this? I'll, I'll do it every now and again, okay? I can't commit to it every week. Oh, I wouldn't mind, um, there's John. Can oh, yeah. explain that story or John Cena? Oh, sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, th- we had this interesting incident here on the program we used to record the podcast where um, Liam would constantly come in, you know, we can see our little names or usernames or whatever, and... uh Liam would constantly come in under the name John Cena for reasons that we have, we, we previously had no idea why. Like, you know, I was just myself and Jaden just said Jaden. And then for some reason, Liam comes in and it says John Cena is his username. But then you miraculously, what was it last week, just suddenly go, oh, by the way, oh, I made an account and called it John Cena. Well, that, that explains it then, doesn't it? Yeah, it was, a, it was a test account I made just to like test out the program and my how my voice sounded and stuff. I forgot all about it. But yeah, I named the account like John Cena the Third or something. So, And now you're permanently John Cena. How awesome is that? Okay, so do you are you saying you want me to alternate between John Cena and Paul Thomas Anderson number one fanboy or do you have a preference of those? Or I think Cena is the best because that's just too long, the uh, PTA one. I don't know. So then, uh, I mean, okay, we're committed. We, I'm going all in on this then to the psychology of the nickname. So then... How do I how do I kind of introduce that? Is it I'm joined by John Cena himself, Liam? That makes no sense, you know. Uh, I don't know. Um, what what have you feel comfortable with? I guess just say you're joined by JC and like you know leave it ambiguous as to whether JC is like Jesus Christ or John Cena, you know. Ah, oh, yeah. okay, okay. So I'm joined by JC Liam mm. or something like that. It's either you know Jesus Christ or John Cena, or just know? or just JC. I guess. God, Jesus Christ, that's like that's high praise there. Do, do people actually refer to Jesus Christ as JC, though? I've personally never heard that. Yeah, no, like the uh, the hipster pastors do, you know, the street ones. You know, your street priests that are trying to get hip with the kids. <laughs> good on them, good on them. That's how they connect with all the uh, all the acronyms. It makes sense. Well, anyway, let's, let's get away from the nickname talk. This is Cinema Effect, the podcast where we review and talk about a different movie every single week. The show posts every Monday, and can, you can find us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, so please subscribe on all those things. Leave us a rating of five stars. That would be greatly appreciated. Helps the show out. And remember to submit your questions, thoughts, reviews, comments, whatever, for the next week's episode um, in the YouTube comment section, and we'll read them out at the end, as we always do. Um, And I've gotten to this part right here, and I've realized we have no specific question prompt of the week yet. (laughs) All right. Do we want to? Do we? We want to keep that rolling. So, any ideas, anyone? Favorite Pixar film. 
Perfect. God. Oh, yeah. Did you have that in mind beforehand? No, I was just thinking, I was like, oh, I don't know. Something that you'll appreciate, something that we can all get behind. You know, everyone's seen at least one sure. Pixar film. Easy yeah. answer. Oh, another favourite Pixar film, right? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. God, you were quick on your feet there. That was a great one. Okay, there you go. Question of the week. What's your favourite Pixar film and why? Let us know in the comments. That's That's great. That's really cool. This week, we're kind of rounding out, in terms of the movie, we're doing a little mini Western marathon. Although... As we'll get into in the data dump, I kind of question whether this counts but any, as a Western, but regardless. Uh, this week we're doing No Country for Old Men, and this is a movie that I've seen before, I'd, so this is my second viewing. Is it all of our second viewings, or have either of you guys, uh, have you guys seen it more than that, or what? This was my second viewing. Cool. I don't know. I've definitely seen it a couple of times. Not sure. Okay, okay. So yeah, so we'll, there you go. We've all got multiple viewings of this one, so that's... That's cool. Different perspective there. Um, let's do the data dump. So the film opened in the US on the 24th, 24th? No, it says 21st of November 2007. It was directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. It was also written by Joel and Ethan Cohen, but notably it is based on the 2005 Cormac McCarthy novel of the same name. And I, I don't think I knew it was based on a McCarthy novel before I watched it the first time. I might be misremembering that, but I think that is, it's significant because obviously Cormac McCarthy is kind of one of the most well-regarded US authors in modern history. So, I mean, I think that, I think that's pretty cool. And the fact that it's a 2005 novel, they had a pretty quick turnaround on this movie. Mm. The cinematography was done by Roger Deakins. Uh, Shout out. We all, we all can appreciate that. Interestingly, the film was also edited by the Coens, but for reasons unknown to me, and, and I'm not sure, this happens a fair bit, I think, but I don't really understand why, um, they edited under an alias. In the credits, it says that Roderick Janes edited the movie. It's so they can get um, Academy Award nominations because, yeah, the Academy doesn't usually allow jurors in categories. So for directing, they made exceptions because they're an established duo. Before editing, they um they need the rules like dictate that they need to have you know one person. Interesting, but then but everyone knows they did it. So like, how does that work? You know, the academy said anyone. that if they win, then the presenter would accept it on their behalf. Oh, okay. So so they do that so they're able to be considered. Yeah. But not necessarily with the the logic going through that they would win. Yeah. So, no, I get it. They do it so they're able to be considered. I just thought it was weird then if they were to win, and, but then everyone knows it was just them. But anyway, regardless. The film stars Tommy Lee Jones, Javier Bardem, Josh Brolin, Woody Harrelson, who I had honestly completely forgotten was in this movie. Um, <laughs> when he turned up, I was like, wait, what? I thought this was... That, that blew my mind when I was watching it. Anyway, and Kelly McDonald. The film won the Best Picture at the Academy Awards in 2008, which... I don't know. I think I know how you feel about this, Fitzy, but for me personally, especially after rewatching it, I feel like this is such an injustice and there will be blood. Come on, right? Yeah. Well, I think they're both fantastic, but I think There Will Be Blood is obviously the uh, better film. Oh, okay. Cool, cool. Yeah, but yeah. So we're in agreement there that, yeah, There Will Be Blood. Um, It's a bit of a shame on that one, but anyway, in my opinion. Budget of $25 million, box office of $172 million. On IMDb, there is no mention 
of the genre coming under Western. Instead, there was like drama and other crap, and I, I chose thriller. I think that makes the most sense. Would you guys agree? Um, yeah. yeah, crime thriller. But I get what you meant, Fitzy, with that, the whole Western thing, though. It obviously, um, setting-wise and just the general feel of it does have that Western feel, so I totally get get why that connection makes sense. The film has a runtime of two hours and two minutes. And the brief synopsis is violence and mayhem ensue after a hunter stumbles upon a drug deal gone wrong and more than $2 million in in cash near the Rio Grande. I don't think I said anything wrong, thank God. Guys, what did we think of No Country for Old Men upon watching it again? Um, I'll start with you, Jan. How did you feel about it this time? Um, I was surprised by how much I liked it this time around. Because um, the first time I watched it, I really did not like it. I mean... I could appreciate for the way it was crafted and, you know, some of the acting, but I thought it was pretty poor in other aspects. So going in with that um, idea in my head, I think it may have bolstered my my viewing this time because this time I really, really enjoyed it. I, it won me over, like, a lot. How about you, Fitzy? Because I know you very much liked the movie, I believe, from the start. So did that change for you this time or anything else? No, not really. Um. Yeah, I just think it's a really, it's really great. It's a, um, like, kind of works as a simple thriller, as you said, but it also has, also works as a kind of philosophical movie. So, yeah, I really like it. Yeah. I, um, my, my weird thing with this movie is that I didn't love it the first time I watched it. I, I appreciated aspects of it, thought and liked, um, certain elements of it. But then other parts, I was with you, Jane, where I was like, things didn't work for me and watching it this time in a weird way added more depth I think naturally as it would to my opinion I don't really think I like it any better but but I don't think I really like it any worse either I feel like I just understand it maybe a little bit more and I also just kind of the things that I like and the things I dislike kind of swap swapped around a little bit in a weird way um but other than that no I, I kind of think I think the movie is decent and, but, but it has some issues for me in, in some different ways. Um, but I definitely agree with you, Fitzy, that the movie is quite philosophical in a, in probably one of the most ambiguous kind of ways that I've personally ever experienced in a movie where I don't think that this movie is, and maybe others will disagree with me, I don't know, but I don't think this movie is trying to say or is about any one thing in particular at all. And part of that throws me off. Um, so maybe that speaks to how it's, you know, a level of genius beyond me or something. I don't know. But I don't know that was an aspect of it that was super interesting to me, especially getting to watch it a second time, knowing what happens and everything like that. Does the, on that philosophical topic, does the movie mean anything or is it, is it about anything to you in particular, Liam? Okay. Well, I guess what, what is it? What do you, what are your problems with it first? Like, what what kind of doesn't fit with you in in terms of the philosophy and themes in it? I, I feel like those those thematic ideas that exist in it, and they clearly do. I mean, there are scenes that are literally in it that are just doing nothing but exploring thematic ideas. They don't progress the plot in any way. Um, I just feel like they're so, in a weird way, disconnected from the plot of the movie, from what's happening in the movie to the point where none of it feels satisfying to watch at all. And maybe, you know, hey, like, that might be the intention, and if so, that's that's cool, but it just doesn't 
give me an experience that I particularly um, find all that enjoyable or great or anything, if that makes sense. The film's almost just, it's almost too ambiguous for me, honestly, um, if that makes any sense. Well, it's not very ambiguous to me. Um, Yeah, it's kind of, um, so, well, you have Javier Bardem's character and, you know, he's kind of this psychopath, uh, murderer and you can't really understand him you know he's kind of the embodiment of chaos and um you know the whole movie the audience is trying to understand him uh the sheriff is trying to understand him and uh the sheriff thinks that you know he's a product of the the changing times and you know back in the old days people used to be criminals used to understand criminals used to understand people and now it's everything's like thrown into chaos in a way, but the movie kind of leaves us on a note telling us that like, no, this is the way it's always been. There's always, the world has always been chaotic in some way. So like, yeah, no country for old men kind of comes back to the title where it's like, you know, when you get older, at least in theory, you kind of become more, you know, you you kind of become more idyllic of the past and you thought there was more order there, but it's like, it's always kind of been, you know, the way that it, it is or it is presented in the movie. Yeah, that's kind of how I think. That's kind of how I see it. I was going to say, I think it's interesting that you refer to Javier Bardem as an agent of chaos because I think it's kind of the opposite. He's, um, not that he's sane or anything, but like he's methodical and clean and, you know, and he's, he's there's nothing, because, you know, chaos is about adding an element of surprise or, about adding this unexpectedness, but there's nothing unexpected to him, at least from a outsider's perspective. Yeah, he may seem chaotic, but he's actually, you know, very by the books of his own. He's he's very by his own books, and he's got his own principles that he abides by. So he is he is he really chaotic in that sense? Well, that's what I that's what I think. Um, yeah, I think the movie is ultimately saying that he's not like. You think that he is because he does all these crazy things, like you know, he decides he was going to kill people on the uh, flip of a coin or whatever. But the ultimate conclusion of the movie is that actually he's just like any other psychopath that has existed throughout history. Kind of, you know, it, the movie kind of does a one eighty, and then at the end, in the way. How do you think then that ties into, I guess we're right at the end and that's a fine point for me to start because the end is probably the aspect of the movie that I, 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 the further the movie goes, I dislike it more. And uh, so then how do you think with that in mind about, um, about sugar, sugar, sugar? I don't know if I know how to say it. How do you guys say it? Sugar, yeah. Sugar. Yeah, cool. Um, how How do you, what you just said about him, which I think resonates with me then, how does that link into kind of the lesson, I guess, that Tommy Lee Jones kind of learns, like you mentioned about how, you know, the, this generational separation, you know, doesn't really exist. It's always been there. It's kind of an illusion in a sense. Um, well, what did you think of what I said earlier first? Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, I, I, I completely agree with you. I think that if the movie's trying to say anything in particular, I think it's that. And I think that that's, I, I really like that. I, I think that's a really cool message um, that it, it's quite a, I think it's something that everyone can take away. It's a, just a cool life lesson in general, I think, which is, which is cool. But 
I don't know if it's it's really told in a way or it's presented in a way that's overly interesting or well thought out. Um, at times, it kind of felt like this movie was a really good first draft where the ideas are there, the characters are there, there's awesome moments, awesome scenes. Um, and this is all on the page I'm talking about. Direction-wise, execution-wise, it's all phenomenal. But purely on the page, I just feel like these ideas aren't really that well implemented into the story itself. Um, so that's sorry. That's how I yeah. That's how I feel about the, the, your initial kind of interpretation of the movie. So I agree with it. But so then, how do you think uh, Chigurh, um kind of links into that at all? Well, I think that like the fact that Chigurh seems so um, like different and complex, and the fact that you know the audience is kind of put into the sheriff's position of trying to understand this this criminal. And, um, like, the, the the fact that he doesn't seem traditional in that way, like, of a regular villain. And then also the story doesn't, like, you know, end traditionally with the hero and the villain fighting kind of adds to the whole, um, the whole thing with the sheriff, I guess. I guess what I was thinking was, this is a very, this is a half thought out thing on my part, but I'm just thinking, like, so you think that Chigurh kind of isn't that hard to understand, isn't that, you know, uh, incomprehensible as the film kind of initially presents him as. He's not really that, you know, by he gets hit in the car and everything about how he has his own order and everything. Does that in any way, you know, contradict kind of the idea that Tommy Lee Jones you know, he, he kind of comes to learn that, oh, no, the, the violence, the, the craziness out there in the world, it's always been there. But then there's the fact that Chigurh doesn't kind of really represent that in the way that he thought conflict in any way. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but... Mm, this might sound really dumb, but um, like in a, in a way, Chigurh is kind of... Like, his order is kind of representing chaos in a way. Because, like, with the coin scene... um. He he kind of sticks by the principle that you have to like that there is chaos in a way. Like with the coin with the two or three coin scenes in the movie is kind of like he uh he's like if the coin lands a certain way then that is what's right because you know, chance dictates that. It's like his principle his principle is chaos in a way. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the the rule that he chooses to kind of, you know, make his decisions, you know, determines his actions. And a moment that I think went over my head the first time I watched it, I don't know how, but I, I'd certainly forgotten it if it didn't go over my head, but I really like when Tommy Lee Jones goes back to where Josh Brolin carved it and um, Bardem is, pre- oh, at least to me, it seemed like he was in the room, but then he flips the coin and like basically the coin saves Tommy Lee Jones. I think that that's a really cool moment that kind of um, exhibits what you're talking about there. Jane, how do you feel about Chigurh and just generally Javier Bardem's character in this movie? Um, the first time I watched it, I didn't like his character at all. I thought it was weird that he was so celebrated. I thought his performance was fine. Um, but I just didn't understand. You know, I thought the character was cool and all, but I, I never understood the motivations. But this time around, I think I paid more attention and to him and to like just the story in general. Um, so I did get to like the character a lot more. 
the first time watching, I never understood the motivation for any of the characters. I mean, it, it felt weird to me that, you know, Josh Brolin's character found, finds two million in the desert and he just, you know, decides to nick it. I mean, like, I don't know, because if, 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 he seems like an honest man to me and I feel like he would have at least reported it to someone or, like, done something other than just, you know, take it and then go on this epic, you know, cross-state journey of trying to, you know, get away from this serial killer. And I never understood, you know, why Bardem was there trying to tra- tra- trace down the money. Um, because I it just, I, I never realised that he was hired by, you know, the agency at, at first. So this time understanding the character's motivations and understanding more, it made me appreciate it more. So I, I, I think maybe I don't quite understand this either then. So are you referring to the agency that Woody Harrelson works for? Yeah. And are you saying that the, so they hired, they hired Bardem, right? But then, but who are they? Like they're the DEA? What? I thought they were, but. Um, yeah, I think they refer to him as that, but like I, I, I just kind of see him as an ambiguous agency representing, you know, the FBI, CIA, whatever they are, and you know they've kind of set up this, you know, this drug deal in the desert, and it's gone wrong, so that's why they've dispatched Bardem, but you know, it's, um, but you know, as the events unfold, it seems like you know Sugar is not going to come through, so they dispatch more agents, and that's what never made sense to me because like it never made sense as to why this agency is setting out agents to kill other people and to finish other jobs. But this time around, you know, it made sense as to like why what happens happens. So along those lines then, why does Chigo kill Woody Harrelson? Um, it's because he sees him as an obstacle in his path, I kind of think. Because earlier in the film when he kills those two people out in the desert, like the two um, managerials, whatever they call them, um, it's because yeah, that makes more sense now. Yeah, it, it clears up later when he says, you know, you, ch- you when you choose a job, you choose one tool to do the job, whatever. And Sugar is that tool, so he sees. So that's why he kills a two billion desert, and I kind of see that as to also why he kills Woody Harrelson because, you know, he's that tool, and he's Woody Harrelson is just getting in the way of him completing, you know, what he's doing. Yeah. Okay. I'm having an epiphany right now with what you're saying because then this this all adds up with. Why he then? Why Chigurh goes back and kills the dude in the office, and what they were talking about with the little um, I don't know what you call it—the thing you put in the money that's like the the indicator, the or transponder, whatever. Yeah. Would, Thank you. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, the transponder. That, that okay. That all that's all cleared up for me now. Um, I guess yeah. I, I the part of me that never understood that Chigurh was hired by these people was, I guess, purely the fact that I've got no idea in a real world situation why a government agency would hire this person. I've got no idea why. Because he's a professional. I mean, it's just, he like murders like multiple people. It's just kind of like, I don't know. I feel like this is such a, <laughs> if you want to get conspiratorial about, you know, governments and what they're willing to do for shit, but like, this is kind of out there for $2 million. No, I mean, adjust for inflation, Zach. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, this movie's set in 1980, isn't it? So there you go. Yeah. That's shit. Maybe you're right. It's worth actually like $40 million. They're willing to kill people for that. Hmm. Yeah. Easy. Oh god! Well, there you go. I'm happy we got to the bottom of that a little bit more because I I didn't really get that all that all that well. I guess I know last time that you, the first time that you saw it, you said that you thought the the philosophical stuff at the end wasn't like incorporated incorporated into the movie as much. So, like, do you still feel that or? I I feel it to a lesser extent. 
Um, I think what happened was I kind of in my head thought that what you're referring to is the fact that I just felt that um, the, the kind of quote-unquote message of the film or whatever that we took away from it earlier being that um, the whole thing with Tommy Lee Jones and how the world's always been this way and all that kind of thing, which I like, how it kind of feels like it's just disconnected from the main narrative. And from that, I kind of exaggerated, I guess, in my own brain over time um, how that actually plays out in the movie. Because watching it again, I realised Tommy Lee Jones is actually more involved in the plot than I had kind of had in my head. I, I Before going in again, I kind of remembered falsely that, oh, Tommy Lee Jones has four scenes and he kind of just is walking around saying some shit and it, he's kind of got nothing to do with anything. And he's not, you know, he's not hugely involved, but he's definitely involved way more than I thought and he's involved enough... Um, to where I think uh, an aspect of my criticism there that you mentioned um, is definitely lessened for sure. But even still though, I, I don't quite see how the that idea of um, how the world is always dangerous and how um, the older generation will never perhaps be able to understand um, younger generations or you know, things that are coming in new for them and how that's just an uh, everlasting cycle, I guess. I don't really see how that kind of comes into anything outside of Tommy Lee Jones' scenes very substantially at all in the movie. Okay. Do you disagree so with me? So you don't see how Javier, what's his name, Chico's character relates to Johnny, uh, Tommy Lee Jones's deal? Johnny Lee Jones, I love that. Not really. Like, like, sure. Sorry, don't get me wrong. Obviously, he represents the 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 new world or whatever, the new chaos, the new craziness, the new violence, and all that shit. And, um, I, I love Tommy Lee Jones' opening monologue about how, um, was he talking about his uncle there or something? You know, old sheriffs used to walk around; they didn't even have to wear guns and all this. I, I like that a lot. Wear guns, carry guns. You know what I mean? Um, I like that scene a lot. That moment a lot. But then, so then, in that sense, what you're saying, I, I get how Chigurh kind of represents that that chaos, that new chaos for him. But outside of that, though, I don't see how outside of just the fact that Chigurh exists as a character, as a character, uh, you know, has the traits that he has as kind of the psychopath. Outside of that, though, that's kind of all I see. Is there more to it? Um, I think like in the fact the fact that in the story you have the kind of protagonist. Uh, Josh Brolin's character, and then you have Shigeru, the antagonist, and like they, you know, they never meet in a final battle. It's like Josh Brolin's character gets killed off screen. It's kind of like, uh, you know, that the the chaos of that, the chaos of the actual story adds to the general sense that the audience gets, and what like what the sheriff must be feeling, like what the heck is going on, like what is this new world, but. It's like the movie is saying, movie is kind of saying like, no, movie, like the real world isn't movies where the antagonist and protagonist, you know, meet up and fight in some final battle or something. It's just things happen and, you know, the protagonist dies off screen. Like, do you, do you know what I mean? I think to a lesser extent, I think um, Tommy Lee Jones' feeling extends to um, Josh Brolin's character in the sense that he doesn't understand the way I didn't understand the first time, like why he'd just pick up two million and then, you know, hoof it. 
So like it it applies more to Bardem, but I think it can be. You know, it can, you can trace it into Brolin's story as well. It's just not understanding this new age, and whether that's because of the, you know, the ultra violence, or whether it's just you know personal motivations of characters and people. Yeah, I get that. Um, going back, so yeah, with that in mind, going back to the the, um, Josh Brolin's demise where it happens off screen, um, I really dislike it, um, and I. Disliked it even more this time, knowing it was going to happen. I thought, I thought as it was happening, I was thinking, oh, maybe I'll like it more this time. You know, I, I just don't. And maybe it's just something within me that's you know more conventional and just you know is not used to that in some way. But I just find it. I'm not against, in essence, um, you know, a protagonist dying off screen or something. I just think the way it's done is kind of so anticlimactic and unsatisfying. Yeah, as the viewer. You were praising Unforgiven last week for the same reasons. Was I, though? I mean, were you not how the anticlimax was actually, you know, part of the effect of what made it great? Well, what do you mean? What anticlimax are you referring to exactly? Because I don't feel like there's there's nothing that's as abrupt in Unforgiven as there is in this, in that scene. No, I wouldn't say there's anything as abrupt, but it's, it follows the same ideas of, you know, just building tension and then it fizzles out to, you know prove a point or to you know convey an idea in well i guess that's kind of that, that's a good point though i do think there are similarities to unforgiven in that way but i guess my thing is i don't think unforgiven uh sorry excuse me i do think unforgiven fizzles out i don't think this this movie fizzles out in that same way i think this movie just friggin' plummets like just drops off a cliff like it just happens and it's like oh wow okay like unforgiven does have the slowness of like i guess the audience kind of the realization of of how dragged out this is and it's kind of crazy that you're kind of realizing or at least i was i was kind of coming to understand this is kind of insane how deliberate this is whereas the, the abruptness of it in this did kind of run me the wrong way and to what you were saying earlier fitzy about you know it's the point of in the real world you know shit is just it, it isn't traditional. It isn't the antagonist versus the protagonist. Shit just happens like that, you know. And uh, I think that's kind of I, I kind of get it, but it's not what I want from a movie in a weird way. It's just not satisfying to me. I liked it because that scene's told from Tommy Lee Jones's perspective. So in that scene, Brolin isn't the protagonist. So I mean, it, the 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 scene's still told from you know the main character's perspective. It just happens that another main character died off screen. And I, I like the way that it shows, it still shows the effects that that death had on, you know, the, the central character of the film. And I think that was, I think, show, I think showing Tommy Lee Jones's feelings about that is way more effective than, you know, having Brolin popped on screen and then cutting away to him. And the, um, the wife's reaction. Yeah. Yeah. It's honestly... I think it's actually almost the order of the events that bothers me. Like, if it were an, if it was something where, say, because like I said, I don't care. I don't mind Josh Brolin dying off screen. I think that's like cool. But if it was something where there was tension beforehand, I don't know. I, I guess now that I'm saying it out loud, it kind of does happen, but it doesn't really feel that impactful. Like, because you know how it fades to black with Josh Brolin talking to the woman by the pool and then it comes back to Tommy Lee Jones and he's um just, you know, in the car on his way there. And then he kind of sees shit's going down and he drives over quickly and all that. So I guess that is kind of what I was about to say I kind of wanted. But I feel like there still needed to be 
something, just some kind of sense of tension because another problem I have with the movie and very much links to this is just I think the tension completely dies um, in the second half where I felt nothing. I felt zero. And this is, honestly doesn't have anything to do with the fact I've said it before. Like I, I, I was super tense in the in the, uh, the first half. I love everything with Josh Brolin going back to collect the money and he's kind of in the woods and the desert and everything else in the river and all that stuff. And I love the hotel kind of um, the cat and mouse game with all that. I think that's terrific. But then after that, though, I guess it's everything after Josh Brolin goes to Mexico up until his death. I just feel like there's such a lack of tension in the movie. And to the point where I just felt nothing upon his death. I feel like I should still feel something, even if I didn't get to see it in some way. Seeing it through Tommy Lee Jones' eyes and the way it was done in the scene just wasn't enough for me. Did you um understand how the um Mexicans found him in the movie? That's what I was going to say. That's where the tension's built, when Agnes is yeah, talking to the other but dude. Did you, yeah, but did you get that, Zach? How the Mexicans... Oh, found him, what, in the hotel? Yeah. Well, didn't they... Weren't they on his mum? Or, or, oh, sorry, excuse me, on his wife's mum? Yeah, I feel like I feel like that is where the tension comes from, and like it, the movie does a lot of things like that. Where like, um, there's actually this video essay on YouTube about uh, how the movie does this, but it presents two things and makes the audience add it up for themselves instead of directly telling you. Like, for example, earlier in the movie, Josh Brolin he closes his window drapes, and so you know when he rides by his room in the taxi and sees the drapes open, you know, you can tell that someone's in there and so that he goes to the next place. And it's like, the movie does that uh, all, all the way throughout. And with Brolin's death and, you know, the Mexicans finding them, I think because you get used to that in the movie, um, the, the Mexicans asking the, uh, you know, the mother-in-law where, where they're going and, you know, Josh Brolin being oblivious to that kind of, that adds the tension there for me at least. Really? So did, did you find that too, Jane? Yeah. It's, it's it's not this, you kind of get this sense of, not not betrayal because, you know, the mother's unaware of it. But, um, you know, you, you get this, you get this feeling inside of it, you know, it almost as if it is a betrayal because of she's revealing all this information to, you know, people that, you know, you, you like the audience can identify as the as as villains mm. yeah, yeah. you kind of like oh shit he's about to be you know found and the mm. characters aren't realizing it but you can you can put it together as a as an audience member and i think because of like previous events in the film you kind of just assume it's gonna go to Brolin and, and you know he's gonna deal with you know them in his own way but the fact that it, just, it that it then you know it cuts to him dying to like you know well, killed by them okay so, 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 sorry, just to be clear, like, I'm not wrong about the mother thing. That's correct. That's how they find him, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, okay. With that in mind, though, like, I got that, you know, I, I thought I might have been wrong when you said it, but I wasn't. So, but I just, with the element of, you know, the audience putting two and two together, I feel like I did that pretty adequately and it just, it still didn't really do anything for me. I'm like, okay, so the Mexicans are on it now and now they know where he is and now I guess they're going to get him. Like it just didn't, there was nothing within the scenes themselves. I, I Don't get me wrong, I get what you're saying and I guess it's just literally a personal thing for me. This is not really a critique of the movie itself because it worked for you, then it's clearly effective in some way. It just, for me, didn't do anything. I was just like, okay, so now they're going to go and get him, I guess, they're, they're on to him. And then, and then, you know, the fact that we didn't get um, any sort of confrontation 
again, didn't have to be from Roland's perspective. Could have been from anyone's perspective um, in any way. The fact we didn't get any kind of confrontation, it's like, okay, the Mexicans are on to him. The next thing I know, he's dead. It's like, okay, cool. Like, that's kind of how I felt, you know? That's fair enough. But I do love the small kind of touches in the movie. There's so, so many of them um, just with... I think, honestly, this movie does, for me, more the smaller things kind of well and then the bigger things just kind of, I don't know, don't really work for me. But obviously, Javier Bardem, like, in talking about building about how dangerous this world is, like you were mentioning earlier, um, I think the first scenes with him do such a good job of it. I love um, his conversation with the, the uh, owner of the gas station, I love, obviously, the first scene in the movie where he kills the, the policeman. Um, and just these little quirks, like, obviously, the coin flipping is quite thematically important. But outside of that, though, like, how he sits down and drinks milk, it's just super creepy. And, and he's got, like, the worst haircut I've ever seen in my life. And it, it all just adds um, something to that character I really like. Yeah, I agree with you then. Because, um, like I was saying earlier, going into this movie, I was going in with the same expectations from what I felt last time and i was like yeah i'm gonna hate this again i was actually kind of dreading this rewatch but from that opening kill to when he when he strangles a policeman like it was such a small thing but like seeing all the scuff marks appearing on the floor like i don't know why but like Mm. that made it like i was like wow okay that's really sick and like it's, it's just small things like that you know the way that um you know you're shown throughout the film that he doesn't like getting blood on him and how he you know, like the little mannerisms that it builds for him, you know, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. He's such a crazy and distinct character for sure. Yeah. And I like we talking about the blood thing. I love when he lifts his shoe up, like to not get Woody Harrelson's blood on him. That's great. I love that. He also um does it at the end. He checks the, his bruise uh, for the blood. Yeah. After he exits the uh, wife's house. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah, he does. Bit of trivia for you. Another little detail of Chikurs while we're on that. Um, his weapon is a captive bolt pistol. Um, and it is commonly used to stun cows before slaughter without risk of flying bullets. That's just... His weapon is like... It's so iconic in a weird way. It's just... It's super disturbing. I love how I've never seen in any piece of fiction someone use a we- that as a weapon. And, and then also how it kind of... Um, thematically ties in, you know, to him, him kind of slaughtering people like their cat, cattle and all this. I don't know. It's, it's just it creeps me out. And how he uses it to um, uh, blow out the locks of doors. Like, oh, God. Yeah. It just gives me the creeps. That's, yeah. I mean, that's like something the sheriff would look at and say like, oh, what the hell is wrong with this world today? You know? Yeah, like, absolutely. This dude uses a freaking thing to slaughter animals with to kill people and open doors. It's, you know. That's weird to have. Definitely. Yeah, because you see that kind of thing in it again, don't you? Know, like it, don't you? Um, with the kid that works at the like the cattle at the sheep ranch, you see him. Oh yeah. So like, I, th- I, th- I, th- I you know, I think like that might have had an. Actually, no, the book was written away beforehand, but like you know, I like to think that you know, him using that that device in No Country for Old Men had an impact on you know, future films as to where they've used it again. But, you know, I th- it's cool to think, you know, maybe this film had an influence as to why they chose to show that in, you know, films later. So then, so Fitz, you, you found that kind of Josh Brolin's death scene kind of in a really cool way, like, reveals that aspect of the real world that 
links back into the message of the film, right? That this is this is reality. This is what the world's like. I guess for me, if that's what I'm not, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth. But then, if that's the case for you, then for me, I just feel like the rest of the movie already emphasizes that plenty. Where I don't need some kind of abrupt Josh Brolin death you know, to kind of drive the point home in a weird way. Like, like we just mentioned, like, I feel like all the Javier Bardem kills and the crazy weapons and his character as a whole, like already emphasize um, that, that vile aspect of, of the world that is present in the movie enough to where I don't need that subversion, I guess, um, in the third act. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. I think the big, the big thing the movie is just going for is, you know, things just happen and it's not a product of the new age or anything. It's just the way the world is. And you know, if that had such an impact on you that seeing the main character die off screen, then I think it's definitely a worthy inclusion because it kind of, you know, your reaction kind of proves the purpose of the movie in a way. No, that's a good point. It, yeah, I'll, I'll, like I could say ad nauseum, like it didn't do it for me, but it's clearly doing it for other people. So in that in that sense, I I credit them. Like obviously they're doing something right. Clearly, what does the very last kind of um, scene mean to you guys with um, Tommy Lee Jones recalling this dream he has, because it's actually probably, I think I come to understood the movie way more this time. It's actually the aspect that confused me even more. I thought I understood it better the first time and listening to it again, I was like, wait, I don't know if I, I feel like I was wrong about this dream. It's kind of bizarre. Does that support the message that we've been talking about this entire time for you? Um, what do you, what do you think is like different about the that scene, or what confuses you? Well, because the, the he mentions in the dream about how he's what was he on? He's some some kind of bike ride or hiking journey or yeah. whatever it is, and and he's you know it's cold in the snow, and his dad's got the, his dad's um he knows his dad is waiting for him with a safe spot and the and the fire and all this, um. I guess I just interpreted that in a way right at the end. Um, I, sorry, what I'm saying is the first time I watched it and about how, you know, I kind of interpreted it as he's never going to make it to that safe place. You know, he's surrounded by this chaotic world and all this. And then I felt like the, the final line, then I woke up, is kind of him um, just throwing that dream out the window and kind of saying it's bullshit. Like the world's always been this way. It's always been this crazy. But then I feel like upon hearing it again, I kind of put way too much stock in the final line. Like, and then I woke up. I feel like that final line doesn't actually mean anything. Maybe I'm wrong. Do you guys feel that? I'm not really too sure. I, 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 I didn't really put too much thought into the final line per se. I, I just thought it was kind of him just saying, you know, like that was that. And it was, he was left to, you know, think about his meaning from what he was given then um i don't know i kind of see the film like one of the main takeaways from the film for me was just about dealing with things that are bigger than you and you know I th- like tommy lee jones character and brolin's character as well i think kind of give that and i see the, the final i see the like the second dream he talks about is kind of you know just enhancing that message of how you know, there's this darkness surrounding him and it's bigger than him. You know, there's a small campfire there to illuminate a little bit of a safe place for him. But, you know, in a world full of darkness, what, what you know, what goods are look light? So I kind of see, you know, that, that that's kind of like my interpretation of it. 
you know, about just, you know, dealing with bigger problems and how, you know, it's easy to fall. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a really cool interpretation I've never, you know, thought of or heard about. Does it link into what we've been talking about with the generational thing at all? I think, um, like, the then I woke up thing is sort of like, now he has to deal with the, the truth that, like, there's no, there's not always, like, order in the world, you know, like, his father, like, the idea of the father, just in general, is kind of like, the idea of, like, you know, the order from the high generation, like, God and stuff like that, and the fact that he's not there is kind of like, or the fact that he's not going to meet him with the fire and stuff is like, um, yeah, he's like coming to terms with that fact, especially with that last line. It's kind of like leaves you in darkness, you know? Yeah. But then I feel like maybe my interpretation's too narrow. I feel like with that in mind, that's supporting the opposite of what we kind of thought. Isn't that kind of more about how, the world is more dangerous than it's ever been. And, you know, like I'm surrounded by this darkness. Am I, is that how you see it? Am I seeing this wrong? Um, I think it just means the, I think the father just kind of means order, not like past order. I think the father just means like the order isn't, when he doesn't meet the father, it's kind of like the order isn't there. And, oh, well, you could see it the other way around where you could say that the father is like the past order and the fact that he doesn't mean it, that he doesn't meet up with him means that like, you know, the past, the order of the past is gone, but then he's like, when then I woke up, which could mean, oh, then I realized, you know, that yeah. it's always been this way. So you could really take it either way, I guess. Well... The, the, the latter explanation you gave is how I kind of most see it. Um, and I think that's a really cool message, like I mentioned earlier. But I guess, I don't know. I don't know if I can say a movie not being clear enough is a, is a good... I don't know if that's a valid or fair criticism of a movie, especially when, you know, movies are art and can be interpreted whatever way you want. So I guess that gets into an even deeper philosophical issue. But for me, that's the fact that that can be interpreted in so many different ways and in ways that completely contradict each other and are opposing opposites just kind of leaves a sour taste in my mouth where it's just like this movie's saying so much but not really saying anything where you know what I mean I feel like it, it kind of it's failure to take any stance whatsoever um because I would agree with you on it taking this that, that original stance we we mentioned but I don't know if it really does at the end of the day and to me, that's kind of kind of an issue, you know. And again, like with Jaden's interpretation, is also cool. But again, it's just another whole thing to take away from it that, you know, like when you can, it, it kind of feels like a situation where you know you put down a piece of art or something, and everyone gets something different out of it. It's kind of I don't know it loses some of it, some of its impact then as a result for me, you know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, that was a bit of a rant, but you know, I don't know. I guess that's kind of just a general um, way I kind of see art in general. I don't know. It's just, it's too ambiguous. It kind of goes back to that criticism, you know? I, yeah. Well, I definitely think the movie is going for the, because, um, you know, Tommy Lee Jones meets with his brother at the end. Like, I think he just kind of dispels like, the whole meaning of the movie there, the whole thematic purpose, like. 
you know, the, the kids came up to their old uncle's barn or whatever and just watched him, watched him die. It's like, you know, there have always been this, these psychopathic kind of people and these things, these things that just happen in life. So I think it's definitely, um, yeah. And as you said, like it's, it's shown throughout the whole movie. So I definitely think it's pretty singular in that, in that purpose. I I would agree with you because I, I think, I think the scene where he visits, it, it is his brother, right? Where yeah. he goes and visits him. Yeah. Um, I think that scene is one of my favorites in the movie for that reason. I think that scene is so clearly just a means to kind of, you know, reverse the narrative um, that Tommy Lee Jones kind of has in his head. And I think that's really cool, especially when the scene just before, I believe like Tommy Lee Jones is talking to like some guy who looks like Colonel Sanders and, and that guy's like, yo, kids walk around with, you know, green hair and shit. And I like how that's, you know, then he immediately visits his brother and he gets the contrasting perspective of that. That kind of, um, it gives him a bit of a reality check on that. And I think that's really cool. But then I just think the fact that going back to that whole conversation we just had about the ending and about how a, a equally valid interpretation of the ending then takes it back to the bloody Colonel Sanders guy perspective that, you know, the world is different. You know what I mean? Like the fact that you could interpret the ending to mean the opposite of what we were just meant to have kind of learnt from and developed with Tommy Lee Jones, it just kind of doesn't really feel that cohesive. Yeah, but that's like that applies to like everyone in such an individual way. I mean, like it all really depends on your background information of how you interpret it. I mean, like if you have like, you know, a pretty big, you know, history of, of like learning about like serial killers and stuff, you'll know they've been about, around for centuries. You know, you look at Jack the Ripper and you look at the Limehouse Golem and whatever. But if you've never heard of these people and, you know, you've always just kind of grown up in this small town with this, you know, attitude of, you know, everything's fine here, then of course it's, it's going to seem like the world's changing. It's like, I, 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 you can't really criticise the film for that effect because, you know, it, it's it, like, you know, like you can't criticise of having an open interpretation because... I think ultimately, like, no matter what, it, like, how clearly it states it, someone's always going to take it the other way. Yeah. I I mean, 100%, you know, people are going to take movies in billions of different directions. But I feel like that's not a, a fair reason then to kind of give you nothing. Where And that's kind of what I feel like at the end of the day. This, this movie gives me a vague sense of something that I think is cool, like, which is that message of... Um, the world always being chaotic, always having these these characteristics. That, but it's just not strong enough. It doesn't drive it home enough for me, you know, to, to for me to kind of for it to resonate. I guess. To be clear, I think I think the second dream says that message either way. I was okay. what I was okay. saying was you can either interpret it as like the father as either past order or just order, and if you see the the father is past order and that the fact that he never meets up with them. But then he says, and then I woke up. It's him realizing that there's never been any like true order to the world. Or if you just see it as order, you can also see the, um, you know, then I woke up as, as kind of, you know, uh, now I have to deal with this truth that there wasn't any order. So I think that it kind of presents that message either way that you interpret it. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. No. I. I. I fully get you there. No. Now I get it. I. Thank you for clarifying that. That's. That, yeah. I didn't get that from what you said the first time. That makes way more sense now. Okay. So. 
Okay, that's cool. That's cool. That honestly, you did just help improve me um, the way I felt about that a little bit there, honestly. Okay. Well, do you have a different... Like, is there any way that you think that that ending kind of supports the narrative that, you know, the past order is dead? Is that your kind of interpretation in any way? No, I don't think so. But I think... Um, I think I, I guess more. I was. I I just meant that I felt like it could easily be interpreted that way. And no, but but regardless, that's what that's all. That's what I meant. But anyway, like I, I do one hundred percent agree with you that I wouldn't see it any other way. And then as a result of that, I do think my criticism there is a little bit uh, a little bit off base. Okay, I think um, it's also worth mentioning the first dream, which is that just that the father gives him money and then he loses the money. So it's kind of just like you know, uh, just another random thing that happens, I guess. Um, and Cormac McCarthy, like, he's said about his writing in general that, like, his dreams in his stuff kind of represents the true feelings or the subconscious of the characters. So, like, the idea that the, the, the fact that he just, like, loses the money in the dream is kind of like, oh, you know, he just lost... Yeah, you know, like things just happen in a way. I think kind of supports that as well. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. When you mentioned that first dream originally, yeah, I, I, I kind of, I, I didn't take that away from it because I didn't, I didn't take anything away from it. Honestly, I didn't think about it too much, but I felt like you know that 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 dream means something. But that was a really good explanation of it. That's really cool. Well, I, I was going to make sure I mentioned the um the scene where he visits his brother and the scene prior to that, but I kind of think I did that pretty good anyway. Um, but I will mention anyway, regardless, the quotes, the quotes in those scenes, sorry, excuse me, in that scene with the brother that, that really, I think drives, um, what we've, um, I think well established what the film's trying to say is that, um, his brother tells him, you know, it ain't nothing new. You can't stop what's coming. That's vanity. I think that's really cool. Um, and so in that sense, and then what with the, my newfound discovery that Fitzy's brought to me about the ending, that kind of. But that honestly does come together to work better for me than I than I even thought so. So that's great. But then I I guess though, not not to to then address an, another kind of part of the criticism of the fact that this message isn't really played well into the plot, into the direct a plot of the movie. You did address it well, I think, with in relation to uh, Chigurh. But what about Josh Brolin, where? Jane, you mentioned about how he discovers the money and, and, and that aspect of it, but I don't know if the kind of the cat and mouse game that I do like and then everything after the hospital and then with the Mexicans like we went over, it just doesn't, to me, feel that important. You know, like, don't get me wrong, like the hotel stuff's entertaining as hell, like I mentioned, but then it's just where after the, after the Mexico stuff, it's just like, okay, because I don't feel like it really it contributes that much to the film. Um, do you have more to add there in that respect, Jane? Do you feel like Josh Brolin's kind of plot does add something that I'm not seeing? Add plot as in, like, um, I don't know. I think it adds to, I think Brolin's arc is more just about creating, is about creating the film and making it entertaining. Like, you can still derive some meaning from it, but it's more from Tommy Lee Jones, from that character's perspective. That's where you'll draw the majority of the meaning. So I kind of just saw... Rollins as a way to, you know, actually tell the story. Yeah. Um, I think, I think Roland kind of represents the 
like opportunistic uh protagonist like you know like um blondie and the good the bad and the ugly in a way like he's just there are guys getting getting uh trying to get the money but he's the one you're kind of rooting for and as i said the the movie i think also works as a simple thriller and the fact that it can like the movie pulls you into this normal the normal plot uh with Brolin and the money and then kind of you know, you know you have sort of an expectation that it's going to go the way a normal uh western or thriller would where the good guy gets the money in the end but you know the whole death thing which if it had an impact on you you're obviously invested in uh Brolin's story like if you didn't um you know if you didn't like that death then there was definitely something there that you were interested in seeing like a a face-off between the two at the end or something but yeah i think it definitely the a plot is very allegorical in that way and yeah roland kind of represents that character that usually would win in a normal movie yeah I, i do partially disagree with you when you say that the movie works as a simple thriller because I don't think it does. And I think the reason it doesn't is, is um, the third act is, I guess really anything else in the second half is the stuff with Josh Brolin and his death. And while, you know, we've gone over that plenty and how that did really work for you tension wise and it didn't work for me, that's totally fine. But I don't know if you can say it's an effective thriller either way, whether it affected you the death or not, because it's, it, there's no, what once um, we get out of, I guess the the hotel encounter onto the street, that that stuff's great. But then at, once we're out of that, though, is there anything left in the movie that can really be classified as a thriller? You know, which um which parts are you talking about exactly? Well, and everything after I guess uh, Josh Brolin wakes up from from hospital, and you know he, um, uh, what does he do? He goes back over the border and he gets the money again, and he calls his wife and he, you know, he drives, drives, drives up and Chigurh's kind of, oh, that's when Chigurh, you know, kills Woody Harrelson and Chigurh's kind of also doing his thing. And it's just like, it kind of loses any sense. And like, sorry, you guys mentioned, obviously the tension still held for you because of the Mexican stuff. And that's cool. But I just don't think that, that thr- I think that thriller aspect very much dissipates in the second half, if you get what I mean. Well, I think um, like in between Josh, in between, what's his actual name? I forget. Llewellyn. Oh, in, yeah. in between Llewellyn, uh, I think. Yeah. I she says Llewellyn, but I feel like it's spelled Lewin. I don't know. Is that just a accent thing? I don't know. Uh, it's, it's Llewellyn. He's, she's more like Llewellyn. Like, says it. Yeah, she does. I love, yeah, I love, I love right. their uh, accents in the movie. They're great. I do. I do too. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, Tommy Lee Jones has got a great one. The, yeah. Um, but like in between... Llewellyn waking up in the hospital and going to the, uh, the, you know, the, the hotel and where was it? Like Las Tex or something? Somewhere in Texas. But, um, there's not much scenes with Brolin there, I don't think. So. No, there isn't. No. Like there, there's not much that, that there, that's actually there to be, you know, a thriller for. Because uh, you got you got the encounter with um, Woody Harrelson's character and uh, Trigger, which I think is 
pretty great, but other than that, it kind yeah. of you kind of go away from Josh Brolin a bit in that part, I think. Exactly. Yeah, yeah I that just proves Zach's point about it not working as a thriller. I think the first half works as a simple thriller, 100%. I just think then after that, because like you said, we don't really get a lot of Josh Brolin. You know, you get a few scenes, kind of very, you know, tame scenes where he gets he gets clothes and he collects the money and he's, you know, he's on the phone. And and, and like, and I 100% agree with you. I think the Woody Harrelson death scene is really cool, but then... You know that doesn't really contribute to the to the thriller aspect, and then but but then even after that, there's no real thriller aspect. I guess for me, the, the the thriller aspect never comes back. Maybe for you guys, it does come back with the Mexicans. Would you say? I think after Brolin's death, it kind of dissipates. But then when um when he kills Carla Jean and when he's driving away, it comes back a little bit. I think it kind of rounds out the movie. Oh okay. Oh yeah yeah okay interesting. Yeah. Uh, for me yeah yeah. It doesn't really come back there. That is definitely... I, I can see why you'd think that, though, like why you'd feel that way, because um, it does kind of add an escalating kind of feeling to the movie back again. But, yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't feel that the movie, as a thriller, ever recovers after the second half. Sorry, yeah, after the first half, rather. And then into the second half, I just feel like a lot of the movie becomes purely... Uh, character-driven with Tommy Lee Jones and purely kind of uh, symbolic in certain ways, especially with um, Chigurh, you know, getting hit by the car and everything like that. Um, so that's why I don't think it can work as a thriller. Uh, you know, I think if half the movie doesn't work as a thriller, then none of it really works as a thriller, you know? I think, um, well, I think, like, after you got Llewellyn in the hospital, then you've got the scene with... Um, Chigurh and uh, Woody Harrelson's character, which is very tense for me, at least. And then you've got, um, you know, I think Llewellyn's, Llewellyn, the whole Llewellyn death thing is still part of that. And then um, Tommy Lee Jones coming up to the hotel and, like, Chigurh's just, like, hiding in there, you know? And then you got, and then later on, like, 10 minutes later, you got Chigurh and the Carla Jean. So I think the source of the actual you know thriller element in the movie is uh Chigurh and he just remains there the whole time because as I said he's kind of you know the chaos that will will remain there because he's kind of symbolic in that, that sense but yeah yeah I, yeah I don't know I just don't I, I don't feel like it it that effectively plays into to the thriller part I don't know it's just like I feel like maybe you mentioned I do really like when Tommy Lee Jones goes back to the scene of the crime and, and like I mentioned earlier and, and um what's his face is in there Javier Bardem is he actually cool. in there though because like uh, Ooh, like interesting, I, I was reading. There's like four different interpretations of how that scene plays out. Because you you've got it where some people think that Bardem's in the next room, or you think that it's you know, it's 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 um Tommy Lee Jones's mind. He's put he's placing Bardem in there, but he's not actually there. Or you've got it that you know, like that shot of Bardem was like ten minutes earlier, and you know, when Tommy Lee Jones gets there, it kind of reinforces that fact that you know you're always just out of time. So like like so, do you actually think he's in there, or like do you think it was? I always thought he was, but I don't know. How do you feel, Fitzy? I think um, yeah, I think part of what's great is that like the movie doesn't always tell you these things, and you kind of have to piece them together. And I think when you do, it kind of adds that extra element of tension. But but anyway, um, I used to think he wasn't in there, and that he was just in another room, or totally. I don't know. He was imagining it or something, but um. You've got 
you're showing the doorknob, and then when Tommy Lee Jones enters, uh, you know, he sees the coin, and then he goes to the bathroom, and there's a shot of the, um, there's a shot of, like, you know, what you used to put a window up, so I think, I don't know, I think Chico went out the back window there, but I'm not sure. I think that makes sense, and I think that's what I believe, but I think it's really, I think it's cool to, to, to think that he's in the room next door, because yeah. it kind of acts as, like, another coin flip of that 50-50 of, you know, which yeah. door would 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 he open yeah because like both because like with the crime scene that like both sides are taped off so there was an investigation into the other room whether it was just you know an extension or whether there was actually like some part of it in, like it put like what something happened so like i like to think it was you know bardem was in the other room but i think it makes more sense that he escaped out the back or he he he, he was in the room and he found another way out I really like the idea that, you know, whether he was in that room or the other room, I, yeah, that, that that both of those are totally valid for me. I, I'd i never heard of it. The idea that he's not there at all, that that sounds, I, I don't know if I like that at all. That that just even more plays into the, what I was talking about with the, um, you know, the movie just refusing to have, you know, to be um, sticking to its genre in any way and just kind of adds more to the, just how... You know, you can right. We're we're, inter- we're interpreting this film to the point where we deter- have to determine whether the person's even there or not. Like it's kind of too much. But I don't know. Does the the one where he's not even there does that seem like kind of it has any validity to it? Yeah, I guess it does because I mean, you know, you're never actually shown because like there's, there's there's no evidence of you know Tommy Lee Jones walking in. You know, Bud Dem's just behind his back and he he he's like scurrying around in the background. So like you know, like I think there is every chance that you know, he was never there and it was just, you know, Jones in his mind thinking, what if I'm walking to my death? But, you know, I personally don't subscribe to that because, you know, I think it removes some attention. I think it works effective as a drama. But if you're looking at it yeah. from a thrill perspective, then I like to think that he's in the room next door. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. That, that's basically what I meant to say. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, absolutely. I think from that point of view it's definitely much better to think that he's either in the room or next door or right there um i feel like i i feel like i don't know if i ever will i probably won't to be honest but i kind of am interested in reading the novel just because i can kind of see a lot of this um these elements working better for me as a book just where you know you have someone like cormac mccarthy and his writing style and you know as a novel i feel like the film doesn't excuse me, sorry, the story then doesn't feel like it's trying to achieve any particular genre or any particular kind of, um, because as I mentioned, I don't think it works as a thriller. So then in my brain, that's like, that's a con of the movie, you know, but I don't think if I were to read the novel, again, I've got no idea how different it is, but if I were to read it, I don't feel like I would have that kind of perspective of this thing's trying to be a thriller and isn't, you know, because obviously literature can be a you know, a bit more open in that way, I guess, a bit less conventional. Um, do you guys have any interest in reading the novel? I guess is all I'm saying. I don't know. I'm not sure if I'll check out the book, but, you know, I might. I think um, what you're saying makes sense because the story is very kind of allegorical and, um, yeah, you know, the whole A-plot kind of just serves as a kind of, you know, to serve the message of the B-plot with Tommy Lee Jones. But, um I don't know. I think maybe novels kind of work as allegories better than movies, but I'm not sure. I'm... Yeah, that, that's that's a whole deep thing. Yeah, I don't know. 
I am interested in uh, reading it though, for sure. Are there any kind of stuff more from an execution perspective because that stand out to you? Because what stood out to me was the complete lack of score in this movie. I don't think I can remember, ex- excluding the credits, that any piece of music in the movie. Um, Jan, I assume you paid attention to this well. Does, um, and by the way, sorry, I just said that like Fitzy didn't pay attention to it. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. But um, it, was there actually any score in the movie that I didn't notice? God, I didn't notice anything. Um, there was 16 minutes of, of like music written for the film. So, I mean, there there is, um, there is you know, music uh, in occasion, but it's sparse. So it plays over the opening and closing credits um, and it kind of just fades into, you know, some of the scenes and into, like some of the background. And like, that's one of the things I really loved. Like, like I think like the sound, like the, just like the mixing and like the effects on this film, the way everything just blends together and it like the silence works so effectively that like, you know, and like, it, I, th- I think that's one thing I praise. So like, I don't, I don't re- actually recall any specific, you know, moments where the score came into play other than, you know, opening and ending. But um, it, it does come into play. I was reading on the, um, and like, just like some of the trivia things. Yeah. But yeah, I think the silence in the movie really adds to the like, general sense that I just get from the movie and the, uh, it uh, really like grounds the movie, makes it very on, um, uh, unmanipulative, I guess. Because, like, I love, like, theme, theme, like, theme scores, like, theme, and, like, just, you know, like, film scores and whatever. But, like, when it, whenever a film doesn't use, like, you know, a background track and they've just opt for the silence, like, yeah. I think it's, like, really fantastic because, like, it, it just works so effectively. And that's what I love um, about Mother as well, the fact that that's completely void of the score. Yeah, I think that really adds to the tension for me. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. No, I thought it was awesome. And uh, I guess, like like you mentioned, there is 16 minutes of, of music. Uh, I've got no idea where it is. I don't think I heard a second of it because I guess that's a credit to how well it's blended in because I swear I didn't I didn't hear anything. I've, I, I have no recollection of any scene that had any music whatsoever. And yeah, neither. the way that's blended I think is really cool. And um, like I mentioned, I really love the first half of the movie um, with Josh Brolin in particular and his stuff. And I've just loved the silence and, you know, the breeze, like you were mentioning with the sound mixing, um, that, you, that that kind of atmosphere that the, the film builds, um, I guess, in, in the kind of desert plains area and then beyond is really cool. Are there other technical aspects of the movie, execution aspects of the movie that we haven't properly appreciated? I know we didn't mention Roger Deakins' um, cinematography yet. How could we not? That's an injustice. I think the... um. Like all the acting in the movie is really great, but like even just minor performances, um, were really fantastic. Um, like it it surprised me so much the fact that Kelly McDonald, I didn't realize that she was a chick from Trainspotting, at all. Yeah, yeah. And like when I when I, when I when I found that out afterwards, I was like, oh holy shit! I mean, like it makes sense because like now I think about it, like it does, like you know, you can see, obviously you can you can tell it's her like just by looking at her. But, you know, she, she does a really good job of, like, you know, applying the accent and, like, the mannerisms of, like, you know, like, yeah, you know, she, that, 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 um, she does, yeah. Yeah. That's southern. So is she, is she British? She's Irish. No, she's Irish. Right. She's, she's, um, impressive. she's Scottish. Is, is, I thought she was Irish, wasn't she? Because, like, I know that, because transporting um, is Scottish, but I thought she was born in Ireland. 
Oh yeah, Glasgow. Sorry. Yeah, no. Okay, you're right. I thought I read Ireland. <laughs> While we're on the topic of acting, Tommy Lee Jones is phenomenal. You know, I don't need to even mention Javier Bardem's phenomenal. Um, but Josh Brolin is he, he he's he's good, and maybe it's only. Maybe I only say this just because his character isn't all that interesting as a, as a person, you know, and maybe that's kind of um, something I'm not giving him enough credit for. But, I, I, you know, I thought he was fine. You know, I, I feel like um, I feel like he's way better in other movies, you know. Yeah, but there's, there's like, no weak performance here. No, absolutely not. There, there's and definitely not. even, like, minor performances, like, you know, the gas, the guy at the gas station, but the, uh, you know, the first coin toss scene, his acting is very, very good in that scene. And Yeah, even Woody Harrelson, like... I don't know, I feel like Woody Harrelson's kind of Woody Harrelson in every movie. And even in this movie, I was like, oh, no, he, he's even given a little standout in his, um, well, he's got like four scenes, you know, and I think he's really good too. But yeah, you're right, no, no weak performances whatsoever. Um, that dude from the gas station is in Hate Flight. No shit. Huh. There you go. Well, we, we mentioned Roger Deakins and the cinematography. Um, I don't think there were that many shots are really stood out but there were a couple like i think when you know josh brolin's running and the car's chasing him and there's that uh lightning shot and um i think it's because it's muted it it makes it better yeah probably yeah and the uh just like all the landscape shots are really great when i think of deacons i associate him with like you know these really epic shots because you know like we've kind of become familiar with him from like i don't know i'm speaking for myself here but i assume you guys have seen like the same films like you know um, Skyfall is one of my favorites of his, like you know, cinematography wise. Um, Twenty Forty Nine, Sicario, you know, and like all these other, you know, these films that have such identifiable and recognizable, famous shots, and like I think No Country for Old Men, it does have a few of those, I guess, but you know, it 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 is that I think it all, I think it works together with the with like you know just like other things of you know, it's 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 a bit toned down, it's still effective, but like. The fact that you can't go, oh, that was a brilliant shot, you know, it kind of, it, it, it kind of, you know, adds to that, you know, idea, like, it, it kind of adds, like, you know, just the brilliance of the film that, you know, it all just flows so well, and, you know. Yeah, no, I, 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 I totally get what you're saying, um, because I feel like um, his, his photography kind of, like, don't get me wrong, like, obviously he's, you know, I've seen just the best shots ever, you know, that he's done, but getting away from specific shots though i feel like his photography brings a fear a visual feeling to a movie um that can't be understated and that isn't and that is more than just you know oh some fancy cool you know shots or whatever where you can see it in everything you know mm. i think i think what they've kind of created is is it, it the the visual style of the film is it's simultaneously like identifiably 80s but it also feels very timeless at the same time, because I mean, like you could easily just say, "Oh, you know that that's the that's the aesthetic of you know a Midwest town, and that's how it is." You know, everyone drives old cars and speaks with this inflection and whatever. So like, I feel like, um, yeah, yeah, I feel like it's a it's it's a, it, it, it it's um I don't know, kind of feels like a timeless piece. Yeah, I totally forgot it was actually in the eighties or any specific time. You said it, I. I don't know. I love how the um. Like the variant scene, just you can hear the clock in the background and just fades to black. I just love that. But... I like the way that Carla Jean refuses to play Sugar's game because she had yeah. like she had a fifty-fifty chance of living, but she said no, I'm not going to abide by your rules, and you know, so she does. She you know, 
she, you know, he, she does die, but like, I don't know. I thought that was a cool thing. Cause like she, she feels like the only character that makes Sugar go off script, you know, off his playbook. Before, before we get into our scores, there's two bits of trivia left that I want to read out. Um, this first one is wild. Okay. In the novel, Sheriff Bell says on the dope dealers, says of the dope dealers, he's a while back in San Antonio, they shot and killed a federal judge. Cormac McCarthy set the story in 1980, as we just said. In 1979, federal judge John Howland Wood was shot and killed in San Antonio, Texas by freelance contract killer Charles Harrelson, okay? Father of Woody Harrelson. <laughs> that, that's okay. insane. So Woody Harrelson's father is a contract killer, or was, I don't know if he's alive, um, and he has a direct relation like to the to the... <laughs> To the to the bloody novel, that's wild. That's insane. Uh, the the kind of like makes um. Yeah, I think that's cool because Woody Harrelson refers to himself as like as his job as like a day job. Um, so like you know he's referring to himself as how he was like sent to kill, um, Sugar. Sugar. Um, it's it's, it's interesting that you know his actual father was. An actual yeah. contract killer. Here's another one. Um. And, and this is something that I, I had in the back of my head for a little while, but I wanted to mention it. Um, while on location in Marfa, Texas, oh. the movie There Will Be Blood was shooting nearby. One day while filming a wide shot of the landscape, directors Joel Cohen and Ethan Cohen had to halt shooting for the day when a gigantic cloud of dark smoke floated conspicuously into view. <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson was testing the pyrotechnics of an oil derrick set ablaze on the set of his film, the Coens resumed filming the next day when the smoke finally dissipated. A year and a half later, both films were lead contenders at the Academy Awards. Yeah. I just wanted to end there to let everyone know that There Will Be Blood should have won that award. <laughs> um, that, that's so wild because, uh, you know, if you, you've seen There Will Be Blood, we I think we all know what scene they were practicing for. It's kind of it's so interesting how close that was. That's awesome. Yeah, I always see that fact. It's fucking hilarious. <laughs> Hell yeah. It's like those films were intertwined before they finally faced each other at the Academy Awards. Yeah. All right. Let's reveal our score out of 10. Um, uh, you can go first, Fitzy. Go for it. Uh, I'm giving it a 9 out of 10 again, because um, that's what I gave the other time. And, right. yeah, it's just really great. Movie. What did you guys give it? <laughs> <laughs> I found that way funnier than I should have. You go, Jaden. Like I've kind of like moved my ranking, like like my rating for this up in steps. Because the first time I watched it, I just flat out gave it a five. Like I hated the story and the characters, but like you know, I appreciated the way that it was made. And then you know, with time, as I was thinking back back on it, I moved it to a seven, um, to a six rather. Um, and now this time when watching, I I felt like it was a seven. But now like throughout this conversation, like everything we've been talking about, I like. If it feels like I should be pushing it up to an eight, because I'm kind of like stuck on that seven and a half, and I'm just I'm still not entirely sure whether you know, do I move up to seven? Do I go down to a seven or an eight? I think I'm leaning towards eight at this point. You just gotta watch it uh, like two more times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then what happens if you watch it again? Does it go downwards? Yeah, definitely. Or does it, or does it go to eleven? Just constantly changes. I mean, if we, if it goes to eleven. We go for an 11 out of 10, which makes it like a 1.1. So, I mean, it's going to go down again. True. Mm. Well, I don't know. I'm going to give them... Mm, I'm going to give the movie a 6 out of 10. And <laughs> I I don't know. Like, in all honesty, like, I actually... 
like I mentioned at the start, I didn't like it any more or less than I did the first time. I gave it a seven the first time, and I just feel like the seven was too high the first time. Um, I don't know. I just I think I, I like the movie. I think it's a decent movie. I enjoy it. Um, I enjoy aspects of it rather. I enjoy the first half a lot, and. I think there's obviously more positives than there are negatives. I think technically it's very impressive as we went over. I just, I don't know. I just don't think it provides a story. Well, even though I do like the message of the film, it doesn't provide or it it doesn't deliver that message or provide a story that I find, um, I don't know, overly engaging in a sense for me personally. It doesn't hold a lot of tension for me personally. But yeah, no, it's, it's one of those really weird things where, it's just how it hit me on a personal level because I know how many people love it and obviously you guys love it and that's great. Um, so yeah, so it's not it's not any kind of I don't feel like my criticisms are overly you know um, objective um, on a you know actually pinpointing specific elements and thinking they're bad in any way. But yeah, I don't know. Okay, kind of sums up my feeling on like the first time I'm watching it. I think yeah. I think that there are just things in the movie that, like, you connect in your brain and just kind of clicks and it makes the movie better. So I think for that reason, it's actually mm. a very good movie to rewatch. But you know, well, your opinion might not change, but I feel like. Well, I agree with you with that. Uh, like, well, like I said, like I did. There were different things that kind of hit me this time that didn't the first time. And hey, like if I rewatch it again in years to come and again and again, whatever. Hey, maybe it will end up being much higher for me. But, but yeah. I agree with you on the rewatchability for sure. Let's get into news chat. Fitzy, I know you're so excited about the upcoming June film. You know, you've never mentioned it to me before. I, I've never heard your enthusiasm towards it, but um, I feel like it's time that you mention it. So we got uh, the first official images of the movie along with the logo. Now the logo leaked months ago and I had seen it before, um, but nonetheless, we kind of got to see it properly HD for the first time and it's a cool logo. How do you feel about all these images and things? They're great. Very good. Thank you, Fitzy. How about you, Jen? Um, I was saying before the show, um, when the first image um, was released of of uh, Timothy Chalamet, and you've got like you know, like I thought that was brilliant, and I was like, "Yo, this is super sick." But then when the next batch of images dropped, and I saw Zendaya, I was like, "Oh, this is less sick." <laughs> you don't like Zendaya? That's so harsh. Dude, that's so harsh. Zendaya is really good. Like, and the thing is, like, I I know that, and like, I have absolutely no reason for disliking her. But there's like, I don't know what. There's just something in me that I'm like, when I see her in a film or in like any product, I'm like, uh, I mean, like that that that's what's that's keeping weird. me off from like watching Euphoria. Like, like, like I do want to watch Euphoria, but like, well, partially because it's produced by Drake, I don't want to watch it. But then also like the other the other part is that she's the star. I'm like, ah. Oh. <laughs> Well, on a side topic, uh, Fitzy, we've both seen Euphoria. Would you recommend uh, Jane watch it? Uh, I don't know. Like, I'm going to get around to it eventually, but like, like at the moment, like one of the main things keeping me off it is her. Well, I, I personally, I wouldn't let her put you off because she's really good in it, but I honestly wouldn't watch it. Um, oh, really? Really? Oh, you know, I, I liked it overall. Like, I didn't. Reg- it's a weird thing where I didn't regret watching it. I wasn't like that with shit or anything. Like, I enjoyed it, but I would. I don't know. With the knowledge of how it ends, I don't know if I could ever recommend someone else watch it. You know what I mean? It's this weird thing. I remember last year, like, like on like the like there was like a red carpet interview. Like DiCaprio said it was like one of his favorite series at the moment. 
So I was like, oh, definitely have to watch it then. But, you know, I've just been putting it off for so I, long. Uh, I really loved it, but it's definitely not for everyone. Um, I like the last scene, Zach. I mean, it's a little weird, but like considering they don't do that for the rest, but I don't know. I like that. I feel like I feel like we got to talk spoilers about that another time. But um, yeah, I know mean, I definitely didn't like the last scene. Regardless, um, anyway, sorry, June. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> um <laughs> but hey, regardless of Zendaya, Jaden, how do you feel about like the, those other images released in the second round? Oh yeah, no, like I'm, I'm still super hyped for it. I mean, like just like the film in general, the fact that you've got Zimmer and you know, like the fact that Villeneuve's directing, like I think it's great. Um, yeah, the images yeah, don't. Sorry? Oh, yeah, he's in it too. Um, Mamal was also in it, which I'm not hugely keen on. Like, I, I liked him in, like, Game of Thrones, but, like, after that, he kind of became kind of boring to me. But, um, you know, I'm keen for it. Like, if, if, if for no reason other than the fact that, you know, it's Denny's next film. Um, there's not a single member of the cast, personally, that I'm sceptical about. Like, I fully trust them. I fully trust Denny and, and the casting director, all those people that make those decisions. Like, if, they th- if they're confident in Jason Momoa for the role, I believe them. Like, I've got no reason to doubt them. So, hey, yeah. I, I'm fine with that. And um, for me, the first image didn't do much for me. I, I thought, oh, it was fine. Like, you know, cool. Oh, yeah, the Chandler is there and he's standing on a beach. Charlamagne. Sorry, what did I... What did you say? It's... It's, um... Chalamet. 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 You, you said uh, Chalamet. Ah, shit, I got the M and the L mixed up, did I? Mm. Rip. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. Charl- Char- God, I'm gonna- oh, God damn it. I thought I got used to the other way, and now I'm going to have to change my bloody... Oh, anyway, whatever. Um, Regardless, first image I thought, oh, yeah, that's cool, whatever. And then, But the, it was actually the following images that I was like, oh, no, this looks sick. Like, the costume designs I found for um, Oscar Isaac and uh, Josh Brolin those whatever uniforms they're wearing, they're badass. And seeing like the larger cast photo and seeing kind of the different emblems and shit in the background, I'm like, you know, this is giving me some like huge world building vibes and I'm all about that. What I was going to say was that Villeneuve said that he wants June to be the Star Wars film we never saw or that, you know, we never got. So I thought that was interesting about it. Uh, he, says, he said something like uh, it's going to be like an adult Star Wars or something. But um. It's going to be in two two mm. parts, by the way, two movies. So it'll just be the first part this year or whenever it gets released. Interesting. So then, okay. So then I wonder what they do with naming conventions. Oh, sorry. Do they shoot them all at the same time? Because God knows they've been shooting for ages. Yeah, I'm not. I don't. Yeah. I don't think they've finished the second one yet, but. Oh, maybe. Gotcha. Maybe. I don't know. I just. Yeah, I only say that because I felt like they were shooting for ages, and it would make sense if they were shooting two of them. Back to back, like they did Lord of the Rings, you know. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I like how they're doing with Avatar, four films back to back. Oh, that's nuts, dude! Oh my god, <laughs> I can't believe they're doing that. Honestly, dude. Hey, I, I, I mean, good for Sam Worthington. They're giving him, you know. I know. Um, that's keeping his career alive, pretty much. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um. Hey, good for him. You know, he gets paychecks for like these billion dollar movies, and he gets to do them all at once, and then gets to you know do nothing for years. Good for him. Um. Okay, cool. We covered June. Moving on. Sam Raimi is directing now officially after the original director left, uh, the man who directed the first Doctor Strange. But now Sam Raimi, of all people, is directing Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Jaden, how bad is this movie now going to be? <laughs> um, like I said in previous weeks, I th- not really. Like I didn't really go into too much detail, but like I appreciate Sam Raimi for The Evil Dead, but like I think his Spider-Man films are kind of poor. 
So, like, now that he's taking on Doctor Strange, I'm not really too sure how to feel about it. I think it's going to go one of two ways. It's either going to go, you know, the Spider-Man way where it kind of dips into that cringiness and cheesiness, or it's going to go into, like, you know, the Evil Dead way where it's just kind of all comes together really well. So, yeah, I'm not really too sure how to feel about Raimi at the moment, but, you know, I guess we'll see. Oh, this might sound really cynical, but I mean, the fact that it's a Marvel movie kind of, there's less artistic vision or just generally, so I feel like it's not going to make a really big impact because a very studio-based, Marvel films are very, like, studio-based, they have a lot of control there, so, but, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, like, that's why, um, like, Edgar Wright was originally signed up to do the first Ant-Man film, but, like, he left due to creative differences with, like, you know, the studio. And I think that's, like, the story that you'll get with, you know, a lot of Marvel or, like, big big production films nowadays is either concede to what we want or, you know, leave. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that's the reason, you know, why I don't think the Sam Raimi news is that big of a deal because you know that Kevin Feige and his producers and all that, they're going to be, you know, they're going to control the direction of the movie anyway, really. And, you know, really, I, I don't want to discredit anyone who directs a Marvel movie because obviously you have to be supremely talented to get into that position. But at the same time, like, there's only... Like you mentioned, there's only so much you can really do. And I feel like to a certain extent, you know, I felt like you could have 10 different people direct the movie and how much different does it really turn out, you know? Yeah, I think, like, that's what I liked about the first Doctor Strange film because it, it lent into, like, a, you know, Inception-like element with the visuals and, like, that Mirror Realms and stuff. So, like, that's why I was kind of... That's why I was keen for this second one. And also they described it as a horror at some stages. So, like, that's why I was like, oh, you know, maybe this might be decent, but... Like you know, like like you said, with the when you've got this company controlling the production, how different can it be? To me, Guardians is, the first Guardians feels like one of the most distinct out of the Marvel movies. What about you guys? Like it feels like that was James Gunn's kind of vision there that he followed through. Thor Ragnarok feels the most distinct for me personally, absolutely, like without a doubt. Yeah, just that that whole level of like that whole you know level of humor that Taika brings is just you couldn't get that with not I don't think a single other person alive could have done that you know I wonder what made them be so liberal with Thor 3 maybe it's because the first two films kind of were lackluster that they thought let's just hammer out whatever we can and let, let's give more control over to the director for this one well even though like I kind of jumped to the same conclusions in terms of creative control and the studios that you guys do I agree with everything you're saying factually I kind of come away from it with a with a less cynical perspective where like I actually like that Marvel's that controlling. You know, it leads to uh, to collectively a story and a, and, a, and a world that they're building. You know, you know, you can criticize them for doing that many movies or whatever. I personally think there's way too many, but mm. regardless of that, you can't criticize how cohesive their story is and how you know they were able to you know craft this story that lasts this long, that is this um, tight and this focused. And I think that's a credit to their structure and the way they make movies. Um, and you know, I don't want that. I don't want that kind of level of control for you know a solo movie that's not connected to any other universe. I don't want to see DC do some shit where, you know, they make a one-off superhero movie and it's that you know focused on. I guess it lacks that creative freedom. But for a Marvel Studios movie, it doesn't bother me. And um, and at the same time, I I feel like I think the producers there and Kevin Feige and the like there, I think they're really open to different areas of filmmaking and. And, and different things that the director brings, it's just there's much less of a guarantee you're going to see that if it doesn't gel with them, you know? And I think I think Tyker's the perfect example of that. And, and James Gunn as well, like you mentioned, Fitzy, I think Tyker 
you know, he brought that sense of humor and, and that whole dimension to the movie. And, uh, you know, I think it's clear that it wasn't a situation. I don't think it was a situation where, oh, he got lucky and, and the evil producers didn't shut him down. I think it's a situation where Kevin Feige clearly saw how good that was and how much that elevated the movie. And then he would be insane to take it out. I just think. Was it, I mean, like, like, like I, th- I think, I feel like the people only call it, the, the reason people like, I call it so good is because it is a bit different from everything else. Because like, I remember watching it the first time in the cinema, I was like, oh yeah, this is actually like really good. But then like when re-watching it, like, it's like, it's nothing special. Because even though, you know, it is Taika's humour, it is a, it's a watered down, you know, mainstreamed version of it. And like, it's, it, it's, it still doesn't feel brilliant. Like it's, it's good, but it doesn't feel, you know, like a great, you know, movie. I think um like Taika Waititi he has this um he he's been on record saying that like he has this kind of philosophy when he makes films of like he says like one for them one for me like they're like you know for mm. Thor Ragnarok and then he makes Jojo Rabbit which is something that was more much more him and much more personal obviously right. but yeah I'm to me Thor Ragnarok still feels like a very Marvel film, but there is definitely some of that Waititi humor in there. Yeah. I I think you guys are understanding how much Taika Waititi humor is in there. And Hey, maybe relative to his other movies, it might feel watered down or not as, not as well, not as um, substantial, but I I think when you look at it compared to any other Marvel movie, like it's so obvious, like so obvious, like you watch like five, you know, MCU movies back to back um, and then watch Thor Ragnarok. And I don't think you can, you really, in comparison to those, make any argument that anything's watered down? Like, no, like, like I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you can't identify that it's his film. Like, it's obviously his film, but I don't feel like it necessarily makes it like a good film. Like, I still feel like people kind of overhype it because it, it still falls into all the same tropes and ideas, and it just, it just doesn't feel, you know, I don't know how they handed maybe a bit more over to it. I don't know. It just still doesn't feel great. Yeah, I don't know. I disagree with you. I think it's I think it's phenomenal. But anyway, regardless, I mean, don't get me wrong. I get what you're saying totally. Like, you know, it's not, you know, it's not bloody turning the genre on its head. It's still very much quite conventional in its structure and its plot. But I don't know. I feel like it's the other things that really count in that movie. But regardless, um, then there was a trailer this week for a new film um, with Tom Hardy, and, and it's the director of Fantastic Four. Is that right? What's his name? Um, I actually don't know the director. <laughs> No worries. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't remember. I, hang on. Oh, Josh. I'll bring Josh. It up in a second. Someone. It is Josh Trank. There you go. Got it. I knew it was a Josh. Um, and it's called Capone. You watched the trailer. Do you want to enlighten us about this trailer? What What the hell's going on with this movie? Um, this movie first came onto like my radar like I don't know two years ago, I think, when it was like under the name of Fonzie because that was Capone's, you know, um, you know, nickname, um. And hearing that Tom Hardy was connected back then, like, I thought that was weird. Because, like, I think Tom Hardy's a brilliant actor. Like, he's one of my favourites working today. And, like, I know he's versatile. But, like, to pull off Caparin feels, you know, odd for him. Because, I mean, it's a story that's been done quite a few times. Um, But, like, watching the trailer for it, it just feels so right to see him, you know, in in, in place of, of, of such a notorious figure. Because, like... Hardy's in similar roles before in like Bronson and stuff like that and like for legend. So like, I, I think, I think that casting of like Tom Hardy now makes more sense. And I think the trailer is really, really good. I think, I think it's coming out. 
I think it's coming out like May something just straight to on demand, I think. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, that's, yeah. It's kind of a shame, but regardless. Um, well, cool. I guess we'll keep an eye out for that mm. in the in the next month. You identified Trank for, for directing Fantastic Four, but like he also directed um, Chronicle, which I know you like. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a big shift in his career from going like, you know, two superhero films into, you know, a gangster story, but, you know, we'll, um, I guess we'll see the effectiveness. Absolutely. All right. Well, I guess that's it for, that's all I'll cover for news this week, I reckon. Um, how about we get into what we've been watching? Jane, how about you kick us off? What have you been watching this week? TV was continued with community, which is really funny. Um, story wise, I mean, it kind of repeats ideas from like previous episodes quite often but like like it's so funny that it doesn't really matter um i finished star wars rebels at last which oh, yeah, you did. was really great um yeah i don't know like i think it was really like uh, there's the, some moments in it that just exceed you know the clone wars and like even like some of like the star wars films like that the episode like um the twin sons episode where you know you finally get that obi-wan and maul face off is phenomenal um so rebels was great um off the tail of rebels i watched rogue one a new hope and empire strikes back oh my god God. (laughs) yeah yeah um it just like you know having that knowledge of rebels made me appreciate all those three much more haven't got to return the jedi yet but i will soon um i think like rewatching rogue one affirmed for me that it's my favorite star wars film because it's not you know your traditional star wars film um Mm -hmm. Which is what Marvel should be should be doing, um, I think yeah. Um, and then rewatching a New Hope and Empire Strikes Back. It, it, I didn't realize how long it's actually been since I've watched these films. It's been like over like six, seven years, I reckon. Wow. Yeah. So like rewatching them now, I'm like, oh wow, holy shit, did I miss this? And like it made me love them even more. Um, then I was also watched um The Endless, which is a sci-fi horror film, more into sci-fi, but they do define it as a bit of horror. That was really good. Um, the Descent as well is probably one of my favorite horror films ever now, um, which is about these group of friends that go, um, they go like they're like thrill seekers and they go exploring a cave and like everything that can go wrong goes wrong, and that's really brilliant. Um, and then to round it off, I watched Black Klansman finally, and that was pretty good. Too. Oh yeah, I think that there's always a problem with retelling true stories into where do the facts end and storytelling start. And with this one, they took a, like a lot of liberty in creating that love interest. Um, I still thought it was fine, but like I think that cheapened the film a bit. But then, I really hated and loved at the same time that final like minute of montage of like modern day events because like yeah. I think it was effective yeah. and like you know it was emotional and powerful, but like, it felt like such a slap in the face because you know you're presented with these you know ideas like so clearly throughout the film of, you know, oh, look, this happened back then, but also it is still happening today. And, like, you know, it's kind of, like, you know, Lee didn't trust the audience into understanding that message, so he just, like, smacks you in the face with, you know, yeah, here's a montage exactly of, like, me pointing, pointing out, like, you know, that I'm right. So gave that, like, you know, an A as well. Um, mm-hmm. I think like, from all the films I've seen this week, I've, I've given an A. So, I mean, you know. Got some great movies this week. Yeah, good week, good week. Yeah, I agree with you completely on the Black Klansman ending. It's just, um, 
I agree with you. Like the montage itself is actually well edited and well done. It's just mm. so out of place and it does not belong in that movie. Yeah. Um, and I think they sh- absolutely a hundred percent with you. They should have let the movie speak for itself. Um, but anyway, um, what about you, Fitzy? What did you watch? Um, I saw Shaun of the Dead, um, directed by Edgar Wright. Uh, because I watched I watched um, Hot Fuzz a couple of weeks ago, and now I've seen Shaun of the Dead. So. I don't know. I kind of inadvert. I'm kind of inadvertently, like, accidentally going through his like filmography. You know, I'll probably watch Baby Trevor <laughs> this week. Oh yeah, nice. Um, but yeah, that was good. Um, I watched On Sondi by Denis Villeneuve, of course. Um, yeah, I think that. I don't know. I feel like that might be his best film. But yeah, yeah that was amazing. And then I saw No No Country, of course. Really? Yeah. That's crazy. I did. Well, what made you rewatch that? Like, honestly. Yeah. I don't know. It's a pretty short movie. But, um... <laughs> and then I saw Casino by... What's his name? Martin Scorsese. Didn't you watch Taxi Driver as well? And I watched Taxi Driver. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. I'm kind of... Act- I think I'll kind of go through. I think I'll watch um more of Scorsese and Edgar Wright this week. Just go through their filmographies. Kind of an accidental thing I'm doing. Awesome, awesome. Um, thank you for actually pronouncing that Denny Villeneuve movie for me because I had no idea how to say it. Can you do it again? Oh, I think it's yeah, on Sunday, on Sunday. Gotcha, gotcha. When I first saw it. I never heard of the movie before you rated it this week, and I saw when I saw it written down, I thought it said indices, you know, like like in maths or whatever. Zach, don't try. Oh, right. I was telling you about it two years ago, and I was actually like, I was like absolutely raving about it for like about two weeks on end. Oh, you probably yeah. Do you know? On like no, honestly, no, like, no. I understand it's you forgot because like you know all the meaningless conversations we have. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm definitely going to watch it now. I know it's on SBS, so I'm going to check that out for sure very soon. What did I watch? I watched um. I finished Castlevania this week, and um, season three had a great ending. I'm really, really into that, so that's cool. Hopefully, it doesn't take them, you know, another year and a half to make a season. Unfortunately, I think I think it might, especially these days. Regardless, um, what else? Uh, Better Call Saul this week had it was so good. It was one of its best episodes, and probably one of the best episodes of it in Breaking Bad combined. Um, just really. unreal stuff. Um, but. Also, um, Jane mentioned Clone Wars and Rebels. I, I, you know, catching up with Clone Wars and the episode last night was just unbelievable. And I'm beyond excited that it's so clear that they're just going ham. They're going all in on just giving us exactly what we want. And it is so goddamn satisfying to watch. And just all the references and all the, the little moments, you know, it's all so well thought out. And I'm looking forward to... Uh, the upcoming parts of what feels like very much like a movie to end the show. So that's very cool. So with Taxi Driver, I actually saw that. I don't know. I feel like I saw it when I was a lot younger, like maybe in eighth grade or something like that. And it's it's funny, like watching it now, it's definitely not something I should have watched back then because it's just so (laughs) the stuff in it is definitely not for that age. But, um, Enough little toddies. But, um, yeah, I think I like Casino a bit more than Goodfellas, but, yeah, you guys should check out Goodfellas. It's great. I only watched one other movie I think worth noting this week. I watched Snowpiercer, and um, I hadn't seen it before, and 
as I started it and as I was kind of going through it, like, I, I was like, dude, this movie's not good. I was just so, it was boring. It was uninteresting in every way possible. Um, and the bloody, you know, the social commentary had me like, oh, like, just really. But I, I was shocked how much the ending turned me around. And not just the ending, but everything leading up to the ending. I was like, yo, this shit's great. And it's a shame that that first half is there, but um, I loved the ending of the movie. And I, uh, Henry wrote into us, and we'll get into it in a little bit later, about Parasite. And I think this movie is definitely better than Parasite. Um, but, yeah, no, I really liked it. You guys have seen it, right? No. I've seen it. Oh, you, you haven't? You also saw, um, what's her face? Um, the Platform, though, didn't you? Oh, I did too. Holy shit. I actually genuinely forgot that one. Oh, my God. I saw The Platform. Yeah, I did. I'm um, surprised how much you didn't like it. Oh, you got, yeah, because you guys saw that in previous weeks, didn't you? Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I thought it was average. I thought it was kind of, um, there was, I, I didn't think it was well directed at all. And there are just, like I, like, I don't know, like it was, it was, it's fine. It's just like light entertainment is this kind of bizarre premise to just put on and, you know, it is what it is, but I don't know. It's just, it, it's totally fine. Average did nothing really for me. Um, and the ending is like, is exceptionally mediocre. That's just because you're a capitalist pig and you didn't like the messages. I actually didn't mind. <laughs> I, I don't like hate the message. Of the yeah, movie, yeah, honestly. I know, it's just yeah. like, I just think it's poorly executed. But anyway, <laughs> I would have, um, exposing me i probably would have given it a lower rating if it wasn't for like uh like because the exact time that the movie came out um like panic buying was also starting to happen and like the direct correlation between like the panic buying on the shelves of toilet paper and the you know the food going down was just hilarious to me yeah (laughs) so it kind of added added a layer of added a layer of truth to the movie i guess but yeah it added a layer of truth that the people that are first in line and going to the supermarket are indeed on the higher levels. Mm-hmm. As always, we're going to read the listener submitted questions and uh, answers from last week. Last week's question um, was, what the hell was it? Oh, it was your favorite movie of 2019 and why? And we'll get into that for ourselves afterwards. But first of all, of course, Luke wrote into us and said, favorite movie of 2019 would be a tie between Avengers Endgame and Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Excellent choices, Luke. Both the ends to their own respective sagas of story, saga of stories. Endgame was exciting to watch and there was a lot of hype around its release. Rise of Skywalker was good as well. Uh, they're the kinds of movies that you don't need to analyze and you can just watch for entertainment. Hey, Luke, you know, you don't need to, like, I feel like Luce added that little comment at the end to kind of like justify like things we're going to shit on him and I don't know, maybe you guys will, but hey, you don't need to say that in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if there is something to analyze about a movie, it just means that there's something else there to chew on. But you definitely don't have to have, you know, a movie that you can only analyze for it to be good. Absolutely. So, like, what we're saying is don't be ashamed, you know, embrace it. Embrace your opinions. Henry wrote it to us and said, I think my favorite movie of 2019 was definitely Parasite, mostly because I love any movie that succeeds in making a bold political statement and my least favorite movie of 2019. Wow. Henry's answering a completely different question. that We could have asked that this week, but mm. luckily we didn't. My no, no, movie cut, cut off right there so we can so we can say that for another day. <laughs> yeah, just re- end the episode quickly, quietly. No, yeah. no. Um, I think my favourite episode um, movie of 2019 was the Dumbo live-action remake, which was mind-numbingly boring and made me want to leave the theatre when I was watching it in Gold Class, which I think says a lot. Yo, guys, Gold Class, yeah or nay? I think I've only been in Gold Class twice, and I mean, like, it's a nice experience and all, but, I mean, a bit overrated. 
Yeah, that's all right. So cool. Thank you, thank you guys for writing in. We appreciate it as always. What was you, uh, your, you, you guys, your guys's English uh, favorite movie of last year, and why? Dumbo. Awesome. No, awesome. Um... <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jen, you can go. No, no, fifty. You, you, you can. No, you were on it, bro. You were on yeah. it. Oh, I insist. I don't. Oh wait, that means I do. After you, hold on. Mm. Mm, shit. Um. Right. Um. I don't know, cause like I think there's still like a lot of films from last year I haven't seen. Like there's like four of the best picture nom- nominees I haven't seen. So I mean, I think that's always going to be the case with when when you ask to your favorite movie. But from what I have seen, um, yeah, don't worry about that. Yeah. I think 1917 and Knives Out were real standouts. Um, I think they're really great. Um, they're really brilliant, just like storytelling wise. But um, you know, they're films like everyone's heard of. So like, just like give a shout out to a bit of a smaller film. Um, one of my other favorite films of the last year was uh, called The Day Shall Come, which is a comedy about um. Not terrorists, but like it's it's it, it, it's about the uh, CIA or FBI, whatever they are, monitoring like you know, this um, this this political group that's really just a joke, um, and it's just really funny. Probably Marriage Story, I think. Um, I mean, I haven't seen The Lighthouse yet, but they'll they'll definitely be up there. But yeah, uh, Marriage Story, just The Irishman, um. Yeah, I really like Mozart and as well, but those two, I think. Terrific, terrific. My favourite was Endgame, personally. and um, But all those other ones you mentioned were standouts. 1917 was awesome, and um, Star Wars was awesome for me, despite how, obviously, you know, it's very divisive. Um, and I love Joker. I know you guys don't like Joker, but I don't want to get into it now. I want to move on quickly. And uh, <laughs> and our marriage story was good, too. Great. Well, uh Wow, I'm, I actually managed to power through that joke a bit and no one said anything. That's awesome. I'm really happy about that. Joker is shit. Yeah, yeah, that's good. You got it in there. You got it in there. Good on you. Um, <laughs> thank you for watching Cinema Effect for this week. Or watching, listening. You can't actually see us, so you're not really watching unless you're just looking at the image on YouTube, in which case, you know, congratulations for putting up with that. Um, Fitzig, tell us what movie we're doing next week because I've got no idea and where to watch it. We are doing The Matrix... And it is going to be the first one in a little trilogy that we do. We're going to do the three three Matrix movies each at the end of the next, well, end of this month and then the ex- end of the next two months. So every four weeks, it's going to be a Matrix thingamajig. And it's on Stan, Netflix, and Foxtel, so no excuse. It's on everything. And YouTube. for you got to pay for it, but it's on YouTube as well. Uh, I feel like we need an effective way to explain our kind of franchise plan because you, you explain it as well as I ever could right there, Fitzy, but I feel like it's still a bit confusing. Like, so, you know, uh, I feel like we've got to give it a name or something like our, the way in which we're doing, our, going through a franchise once a month, you know? Is there, can we come up with something creative for that? I don't know. Cine franchise. I don't know. That was terrible. Yeah, hard, really hard. <laughs> um, Along with... You know the Matrix next week. I meant to say it last week because, I, but because I'm a dumbass, I forgot. Um, I want to set out a little reminder for the three people that make it to the end of the podcast here. We appreciate you, but also the fact that um, we're going to be doing, we're planning on doing Westworld season three, um, and covering the entire season in one episode um, in the next. Oh, I don't know when it, it. It'd be our ninth episode, so I guess in three weeks' time. Yes, from from this. So. 
that's what we're going to be doing. So we're just letting you know if, you know, if you'd like to catch up and watch the movie with us or, you know, whatever, it's going to be, you know, Westworld season three. So just giving you the time and I'll get, remind you every week leading up to it. So uh, just giving you the time to watch it if you want to. Of course, you don't have to, but just wanted to make sure you've got fair warning so you're not blindsided by us doing a whole season of television. Jaden, Liam, thank you very much for joining me on Cinema Effect as always. I appreciate your time. Cheers. Sorry. Vinny, you have to finish off by saying this is the Scrofield Kids signing off. Oh, jeez. Oh, yeah. It's on a real episode if you don't do that. Oh, this is the Sch- I'll do it for you once, Jane. This is the Scofield Kids signing off. Have a great rest of your week and goodbye.